Okay then. Yeah, go for it. Okay then. Uh, hi everyone. My name is Samuel Spellman. I am a Brazilian scholar uh, dealing ma mainly with international relations, particularly with imperialism within the Marxist tradition of imperialism. So a lot of Lenin, but a lot of uh, contemporary authors as well. Uh, I've been studying both imperialism and China for the past five years now. I'm currently a PhD student, and I'm also a professor at the, at the uh, Paraíba, which is my state, which, which is my home state, uh, Federal University here in Brazil. And I'm also a postgraduate teacher at the Pontifical Catholic University of Minas Gerais. Uh, there I coordinate a, a specialization. It's, it's like an MBA uh, dealing with uh, basically China. It's, it's mainly focused on the contemporary China. So uh, I give lectures on both history of China, but also on the economics and the interna international relations side as well. Uh, that's about it. Yeah, that, that's perfect. Um... So, yeah, as I was saying to you a little before, the, the purpose of, of this interview, I, I'm very interested in, uh, perhaps this will be a little bit of an introduction for some viewers who are, as you were, as you were saying, unfamiliar with more contemporary theorists of imperialism, but in particular, would love to talk about John Smith and uh, his book, uh, Imperialism in the 21st Century. He wrote a review on it, and I think he, you know, it's a recent book, so he, it, covers a lot of the very more recent and more contemporary debates about imperialism. He discusses Yuri Emanuel, Charles Bettelheim. Um, he discusses Lenin and even, you know, he has his opinions on Marx and Reed's capital as well. So before I ask any questions about it, if you don't mind sort of like a very brief summary of, of your review and, and maybe also some of the main ideas of uh, the, the book as well. Sure. So, um... Basically, John Smith's book is, the, is a bit, uh, it was published, I believe, in 2017. So it, it's over, over five years now. It's mom. Uh, and some, some things have changed since 2017, right? Uh, that's what actually got me into China. I, I wasn't, uh, I'm, a, I'm a law degree. <laughs> I have a law degree, so I'm not usually focused on the political economy. Uh, it was my my my, my favorite subject uh, on on the side, uh, but you know it it the the whole Brazilian question over imperialism always got me thinking, because we I knew that we expressed a, a bit of imperialism ourselves, particularly during the the two thousands, uh, which which is the the decade in which I grew on. I'm from nineteen ninety four, so uh, I I saw both the good and the bad of the of the whole relations as you had particularly with the remaining of south america and and africa as well over the 2000s but i also understand the the whole particular relations brazil has with the with the west with the with the, the hegemonic order in the world so even though brazil um, managed to implement a limited version of imperialism, which uh, Rui Mauro Marini calls sub-imperialism in his theory over the 1970s. Even though we did that, we, also, we were also under siege ourselves, particularly when dealing with the United States after the, 
after 2008, 2009. So uh, a lot, the, there, there is this particular thing that got me thinking about if we were imperialists, uh, what about the other nations? What about Russia? What about China? What about uh, the remaining BRICS? So uh, it, it got me thinking and I, I started to analyze if, uh, over and over and again. And so I applied on a, on a master's degree uh, stood in China, but particularly the China's creation of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. That's what got me started. But also on the side, there was also the, the, the whole imperialist matrix of an, of an analysis for, uh, for Marxism. So there are several very interesting debates regarding this, because what is the nature, Joseph? What is the nature of imperialism itself? Is it a concept or, or, or does it go deeper? Because if imperialism is, is just something that we say a nation is, then we can say it is not. And, and, and therefore we are just denoting something upon them. So is Austria imperialist? Is Italy imperialist? Is Spain? Is Norway? You know, what's the nature of them? Because they do not control the whole order, yet they participate in it and they benefit a lot from it. There, there is the whole question of Canada as well. So uh, imperialism for me, it cannot be, it can never, never be uh, comprehended as a concept itself. It, it, it should go deeper. It should be understood as something that transforms. It is something that is essential to the whole order. So it is a, a category within Marxism. And this is important because imperialism has changed over the past 100 years. We can go a, a lot deeper on this because uh, what we, when we read Lenin, we see a world in which there are several empires uh, fighting each other for, for the conquest of, of markets and of uh, essentially the, the conditions for reproduction of capital. We see the United States participating on it, but we also see France, we also see the, the British, we also see the Russian Empire in his days. But a lot, a lot has changed since then. There are several other theories competing because the United States eventually overtook both Britons and both other Europeans position as the core center of imperialism. And this leads us to the question, was Kautsky's theory of ultra-imperialism right? Because this is a very, very good point. But, but so what does Lenin say has to say about that, right? It's, and the only condition we have to tell us is that imperialism is always there, it's always within the capitalist matrix, but it also changes with, with time. And it, it has also changed since 2017 upon today. It has changed a lot. So. Well, thanks so much. And, and these are questions that we're, in our group we discuss in, in our reading group about, uh, especially the continued uh, relevance of the polemic between Kotsky and Lenin and whether ultra-imperialism you know, because some people have sort of endorsed the position to an extent, like uh, Michael Hart and Antonio Negri to an extent endorse some aspects of ultra-imperialism or post-imperialism. But so I'm, I'm curious with that and, and with your review of, of John Smith's work, to what extent you found, uh, you know, as you're reviewing it five years after um, it was released, what you find uh, still relevant with it and what he identifies as the main features of of modern imperialism. So 
the global labor arbitrage. And he also talks about uh, the third form of, of value extraction that, that he's discussing, um, which, you know, it, it primarily being, you know, diminishing or forcing down the value of labor power in, in oppressed nations. Uh, but he, at the same time, is, is sort of critical of like Arguri Emanuel, and, and he kind of has an intervention in that debate where he, I, I think he calls Arguri Emanuel a, like a, nas a bourgeois nationalist, um, and he's critical of, of his suggestion that there are, there are um, you know, there's a lack of solidarity between uh, workers in the imperialist countries and in the global south. And these are debates that I think that that obviously is a debate that occurred in the 70s between Bettelheim and, and Emmanuel, but he is picking up on it and commenting on it again. He also talks about uh, global south labor no longer you know, being necessarily on the periphery, for example. So what did you find relevant and, and applicable from this work that he is putting out in terms of uh, diagnosing modern imperialism? And what did you, you criticize more um, in saying, you know, potentially he didn't fully understand this, even if it's very, it's still quite recent, but things, as you say, evolve still. Uh, to me, the whole thing about Marxist theory is that structure and conjuncture are also in communication. We cannot understand one without the other. So even though the, the whole structure and the theories we develop with it, it's always there and we should always be rereading it in order to see if it has changed or not. We also have to understand that the conjuncture is always there. So the, the present day always affects the, the other one. What I'm trying to tell you is that, um, well, one core feature of Smith's analysis, but also uh, several other authors since the 1990s, is that the United States created an order for the whole globe that it is both a reproduction of the previous one from the, the Cold War, but also a new one with new um, mechanisms for, for enforcement. So to, uh, to see the, the World Organization for Commerce or, or the, the whole United Nations uh, functioning, those structures can be organized in order for the United States to enforce their will upon the world. Uh, and this has ex expanded from the Cold War upon today, but also they, they have their own limitations. Because imagine the United States we, uh, under, under Bush II, you know, the, it, they, were, uh, they, they were seen as the, not only uh, the, the, the sole core, uh, superpower, the only superpower, but also as uh, a nation that could not be challenged. This was the nature of the 2000s, but hasn't it also has changed today? Hasn't it changed a lot? And so the, even though the United States created these structures, several other nations participate in them. And they question the, the United States order in, within this, uh, these superstructures. So the, there is the International Monetary Fund, there is also the, the World Bank, China participates in these structures. Russia also participates in these structures. And uh, within them, they tried to change the rules of the game in order to have a, a bigger power of enforcement for them. So they, they, they applied for more uh, voting power and things like that. They were barred, of course. So they started to create their own institutions. 
this is a very new development within the capitalist structure. But you also see that, that this is a, a change within the, not in the structure, but in the, in, in the, super, in the superstructure. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to tell you is that this superstructure will eventually affect the structure itself. Because the capitalism continues to develop its core, uh, its core law, which is the, the falling rates of profits. Mm -hmm. It continues to happen. That we will have more and more crises. So in this dialogue, this is perhaps understood for these nations such as Russia and China as a way to challenge the United States order within the, within the current framework of the world system. So this is a bit of the picture from today, but let's compare this to the 1970s. The 1970s was not like this. You had both Russia, both the Soviet Union and China divided, but also the nature of the function of capitalism was not like this one. We we didn't had yet the the development of the of the global south to the level of industrialization mm -hmm. we have today. So it's current, but we had monopoly capital. So we had uh, the United States had a very big industrialization process still going on. So you see, it it, it it's always changes. It, the, the, this is a relation that has always changed. A bit of what I just said about Russia and China was not the reality in 2017. It was still happening, but in the in the sidelines of history. Now, we, now it's it turned to the to the center. Perhaps this also has a a lot of a lot of correlation to the to the very structure of capitalism itself. Why, uh, I ask you, why are we returning to the times of uh, capitalist competition? Mm -hmm. So why are we returning to this? Why, why, is, why is France and the, for, being forced to, to fight the, the Americans sometimes? Mm -hmm. why, are they, why are they competing for the markets of Australia in, on submarines and, and things like that? Doesn't right. it, does it, it resemble 100 years ago? Uh, why are we returning to the times of empires? Uh, that is uh, that's the question that leads me, actually. Right. And I, so I wonder with that, you know, uh, to an extent, I think what you're saying is in 2017, Smith's perspective couldn't quite predict the extent to which there is a re-emerging and, of course, what people have called multipolarity of uh, the divided world system. I wonder also how your research on, on the BRICS countries can apply to this as well. You know, from what Angle, can we look at the BRICS as a, a new player to a certain extent with uh, nations from, a, from you know, Brazil to South Africa, uh, India, China, and Russia um, as powers within the, the world system, but also as semi-colonial countries or industrializing countries. So how does that fit into the analysis as well um, as you were, you were mentioning earlier of the analysis of sub-imperialism so um, let's get this straight, right? Uh, I one day I thought that the whole BRICS operated on, on the same way. Uh, mm -hmm. I thought that Brazil had a political economy closer to India or to South Africa and things like that. Uh, that's not the case. Each BRICS country has their own agenda, but also their own internal function with their political economy. So and so we have to look at these uh, particularities in order to understand them a, bit, a, bit, a little bit better. Uh, 
India has their own things, own thing going on with their uh, very big growth rates mm -hmm. that that's happening in India, and but also they have a very uh, growing mar internal market. That that's a question for India. Uh, but also they have several huge limitations within their development. They do have that, but they are um, particularly with the condition of livelihood in India. This is the reality for the most of the developing world. But this has also stopped to be the reality for China. China actually, uh, I have also changed a lot of my, my own impressions on China. I thought originally, I thought that China was developing imperialism itself because I, I, I saw that uh, the particularities of the Chinese development have led China to implement uh, their own version of imperialism uh, in order to keep the, the motions of capital happening. So you have to export capital in order to keep uh, capital growing. I saw this process, I understood this process, I proved this process in some articles. So I thought that, well, maybe that's, that's about it. China is doing the same thing. And yet, uh, from 2020 onwards, China has started to prove and prove again that they have not become imperialist at all, that, that they have actually put in motion several contradictions within capital itself. Because without understanding the, the conjuncture, you, we cannot understand what, what China is changing in the structure. So what is the real effect China is putting forward uh, so that they could not only end extreme poverty in our country, they ended it. So it's 100 million less uh, miserable people in the world, but they, they did not disappear. They're having a better life with that. This has never been the objective of capitalism, of capitalism, not the not the excessive and yet beautiful way in which China has stopped COVID on their nation. These are um, these are very big big issues because China has and continues to stop the economy of Shanghai, and it, it, Shanghai is stopped upon uh, even today. The, the whole nation, the whole city is. Is cl closed, and this is a city of over 20 million people. So imagine if you if you stop New York for uh, over two months, so just so that you could control the a disease. This is unimaginable. But this is not. It's not only the, the these are not only the questions that I focused on my analysis of China, because China also has put forward several developments within political economy within the inner functioning of the world economy that are not within the, that could not be described using the, the, the whole analysis of capitalism we have put, put forward upon today. So this is the, the challenge, Joseph. We have to both understand these new developments that China is doing, but also understand what China did up, uh, until today, which is the whole mechanism of exporting capital, in order to continue to grow. So th this is actually a contradiction because when you, and, and Lenin says this, when you start exporting capital, you will eventually start employing the same mechanisms for defense, for defending this capital, just as any core nation. So imperialism can be reproduced by any nation, not only the West. 
We learned that from Japan. Japan was an imperialist nation, but was not, and, and surely does not comprehend itself as a part of the West. So imperialism can be reproduced for, for, uh, from other nations. Why couldn't, so what, how can China be stopping this mechanism? There, there should be an explanation for this. This is something that I'm actually trying to work on the sidelines of my thesis. This is not the subject of my thesis at all, but we, we as Marxists, we should uh, better understand how China sees this problem, how China tries to uh, get around this problem and how they try to solutionate it. So uh, to end up the BRICS, uh, Russia is proving, to, is proving us all that it's not as easy to defeat as we all thought, right? Because uh, the, there is the whole thing about controlling the, the, the economy of Ukraine, controlling their, their markets. This is a very big issue. But also there is the, the whole thing about uh, the, the, this, the dispute between the, the, the NATO and, and Russia, not only for the Ukraine market, but eventually for the markets of Russia itself. Because if Putin and their, his government falls and a liberal-leaning gov liberal government rises up, then maybe Russia, Russia's economy should become itself in a space for accumulation, especially considering they're the Europeans. So we have to put this in, it's also in analysis. So to sum, it, to sum up the BRICS, that, that's about it. You know, you have to understand each one according to their own inner functions in order to bear see what we are facing for the following decades, I believe. Absolutely. And, and with, with that, I'm curious to ask you about some of the debates that Mr. You know, John Smith and, and his perspective, again, some of the debates that he is involved with and, uh, in, the field, in the field of imperialism and he engages with in the book. So, for example, there's some articles about um, his opinion on super exploitation and his disagreement with David Harvey, uh, his opinion on China as well, I think, you know, probably closer to what you were talking about of he believes China is within the global south and is being exploited itself. Um, so I wonder your opinion on, on these debates and, and he seems to put himself more on the side of uh, critiquing David Harvey who basically is kind of continuing the arguments put forward that there's no such thing or imperialism is not super important anymore. We can't really talk about super exploitation. So how do you believe that John Smith is uh, responding to these arguments and in, in his analysis of imperialism. Well, okay, so um, John Smith's opinion, the, the John Smith's understanding over imperialism is mainly connected to the developments of the Marxist theory of uh, development. Of an, and so his understanding is very much linked to the, his notion that underdeveloped nations are, are continuously exploited through labor and through labor relations in order to value capital. So we become spaces for accumulation. And, and so uh, his whole issue will deal particularly with the product of labor, which is the, the merchandises, which is commodities. So he mainly focuses, focuses on these commodities in order to explain imperialism itself. Because to him, imperialism showed itself more and more the, when we analyzed uh, merchandises such as the, well, this is not an iPhone, this is actually a Huawei phone. So 
but but you know he he mainly focuses on on that and this is very very interesting because these these were the, the apparent relations when he wrote his book the the appearance of imperialism uh in times when there is no world war in motion in times when where we do not see the apparent infighting between uh, powers or i don't know core capitalist economies the appearance of imperialism under capitalist organization is the exploitation within commodities so we will never see imperialism happening if we do not look at the coffee mug that that's his whole point from from page one but uh what i'm saying today is that the inner functioning has changed perhaps we're seeing the the ugliest face of imperialism which is imperialist war so uh maybe the the readers of 2022 will see the, his book as dated but it is not it cannot be a, it, it is not a dated book it is just a book that focuses on the on the invisible in order for us to understand our reality because war war is always very tangible compare uh, compare for a moment um luxembourg's book on imperialism which is the accumulation of capital and lenin's book over over imperialism luxembourg wrote previous to the to the first world war so we cannot see particularly in motion the very the very big war that, that was coming up just a few years following and yet she she foresaw some signs of it so she focuses on their own on labor relations as well just just like the just like smith but then the war comes up and lenin focuses on it focuses on war it starts from the war perspective and goes back to explain the whole relations within the factory relations within the bank structure and the whole credit credit circuit in order for to explain how the the industry was controlled by the banks and how it, this was all connected to the but the need and necessity for markets and for profits for capitalists so um to understand all of this we have to get back to some debates right because these are the debates that not only Smith's focus, uh, John Smith's focus on his book, but also other Marxists focus. We have to understand that uh, we have to have a position over the question of uh, over-exploitation, super-exploitation. I, I don't, don't know the, the correct word. Uh, is it super or is it super, right? Yeah, super. Mm -hmm. Super-exploitation. So, or if we, if if this is the case, then super exploitation is a thing that happens only within the global south. Or does it happen within the north? Uh, because super exploitation for our listeners is, the, is something that there is, it, there is a, a limit in which exploitation can happen uh, within the north within the core of the, the of the capitalist order in which the, the the proletariat will not react to the to the pressure to, to the to the economic pressure there, there's this limit but below this limit is very much linked to the whole development process the industrialization process within the global south in order to compete with the with companies from the global north the global south has to 
extend its exploitation within commodities, within the commodities that it produces. So as so to have uh, more profits basically. And, and so to bear accumulate capital and create their own companies. This is the, the basic structure. But the whole point is that perhaps in, in this formulation, this formulation is very much linked to the reality of the economy of the 1970s. But in the 1970s, the 1960s, 1970s, so this was the heyday of monopoly capital. For everyone who listens who has not read Baron Suisse, go read Baron Suisse, right? So monopoly capital from Baron Suisse, it's very much a game changer. So this was the day of monopoly capital, right? This was the day of, um, of, of the forties. This is this, this was this was the world of um, John Ham's character in Mad Men. So, so this this was basically the, the day in which Michigan had a great economy. This was uh, so you do you did not have the necessity to over exploit over exploit. The, the American worker, the, the United States worker, whatever. So, but isn't that the reality of today? Doesn't the workers of Walmart have to be overexploited as well? So, uh, so my, my whole question is that with and my whole issue with the, the overexploitation um, the discourse or, or the, the theory is that it has a geographic limitation separating the north from the south. But can this frontier be erased? Because what you're seeing in the global north over and over again is that overexploitation is growing. And perhaps it's growing because it was always there, but it was on the sidelines. So we could so it was not the not the, the core of, of contradiction within labor and capital in the United States. But over and over again, we are seeing that uh, this is the reality of Walmart. This is re the reality of uh, several other spaces for work in the United States. And so you're working more hours. You're receiving less and less. You're basically being unpaid. The, the, the rate of unpaid work is growing. So isn't this over-exploitation as well? And if, if this is so, then is there over-exploitation or it has always been exploitation. The, you know, that, that's a big issue that I, I like to discuss with Marxists sometimes. Well, that's definitely a, a huge question that we're all interested in researching as well. And it's not a, a clear answer to it. Um, I have just one more question and then uh, I, I have to run, but I would love to speak to you again sometime. My, my last question, and it, it I guess a big one, it's hard to answer in, in a short period of time, but a lot of your research focuses on the uh, the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, as well as relations amongst the, the BRIC countries and investment um, in Brazil. So, you know, using this framework to understand imperialism um, that, that emphasizes the global South um, and emphasizes the exploitation of the global South. And, uh, and as you've said, you know, changing a perspective on China that and there's been a lot, there has, as you've been mentioning, a lot of scholarship. Um, the article about uh, China as a semi-peripheral nation um, in Monthly Review that a lot of people are familiar with, but how do you perceive the, the Asian Investment Infrastructure, the Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB, 
um, and its investment in a country like Brazil, for example, uh, as you were saying, you know, from studying China and not having this perspective that immediately calls it imperialist, but then what what is this sort of investment? Um, if it's not, you know, as, as I agree with you, that it's not imperialist, how can we perceive it? Well, that's the, the million dollars question, right? Uh -huh. Because, uh, well, let's see. Uh, so originally I thought the, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank was a bank created in order to organize the exportation of capital from China to right. overseas. So that's the, this capital should be aided for, with influxes of uh, of investments and you know ca capital lending and all, all of that, and so they would receive money, get that money, reinvest in the global south, get the profits, turn back to China. This was the basically a, a credit mechanism for for Chinese companies. And I did find some of that. I did find some companies, particularly uh, well, I found found uh, shell companies from China reinvesting in the in. Semiconductor, semiconductors and with, uh, yeah, basically semiconductors and, you know, uh, for generation web on, on Vietnam in particular. So, uh, so I, I found some of that, yes. But I, what I also found that is that maybe China is doing something else with this bank because it's not always doing this circuit very well. So when you look at the data, you see that China is actually developing some mechanisms for lending to the construction of the, of the Belt and Road Initiative. And when you connect it to the Belt and Road Initiative, you see that maybe they're actually organizing a way out of the capitalist crisis for the remaining of Asia. What I'm trying to tell you is that maybe they're uh, pumping a lot of money into infrastructure in Asia, so that Asia can grow out of the restrictions of profitability. Because uh, you, uh, as I mentioned before, the, pro the rates of profit are falling. So uh, an easy way out is investing in infrastructure. It's a very easy way out because it delays the crisis. But in doing so, it's also fixates capital. This is also a very much a David Harvey concept, right? It fixates capital. So in, fi in financing this fixation, China also creates mechanisms for it to continue to export their, their, their commodities and all of that. But this also organizes the whole structure of investment in Asia around the bank. The bank starts to control the whole process. And what is interesting about this is that in doing so, it develops other nations. The contradiction of imperialism starts to be development. And this may be the true core contradiction, the, the, the true sides of the same contradiction. This is actually Mao's theory of imperialism. In order to fight imperialism, you, you also not only have to fight it with guns because we have a world in which we have atomic weapons. So we cannot fight them directly. We can try to develop out of the, the, of the restrictions this is Deng Xiaoping's development. But we should do it with uh, a bit more of Chinese way out. This is basically Xi Jinping's idea. So reading then is, is actually very important. We should, we should actually pay a bit more attention to what the Chinese are saying. Because first, this makes us humanize the Chinese 
a, a lot there. There is a lot of racism against Asians going, on, going around, particularly in the global north, especially in the United States. So uh, an easy way out of the set, of, uh, an easy solution for us Marxists to go around is that we should give it, give it a try, read them, and get the, and see see the, the debates they had, how they got out of these debates, how they solutioned their own questions. Because these are people as well; they are not dumb. They are people. So if one hundred one billion and four four hundred million people are learning Marxism, even uh, a version of Marxism that we may or may not agree with them, they will have conclusions same as we, the, the, the same way as we, as we do. So we should pay, pay a lot of attention to that. And maybe we will have, uh, I don't know, our own answers to, to, the same, to the same questions. But this will be the nature of our future, of the following decade and the next one as well. Well, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me. And I think, as I said before, this will be the first of, of some continued conversations um, because I think in our group as well, we're sort of learning through, and I'm also personally learning through a lot of these ideas and uh, would love to do a, a future one. And I'm also, I'm also very interested in, in um, you were mentioning um, the theories of, of Brazil and sub-imperialism. I would love potentially to do another discussion sometime and we can chat about that um, in the future. But thank you so much for this discussion. And, and it was great talking a little bit more about the, some of the new theories of imperialism as well as how they relate to um, the BRIC nations and, and uh, investment and cooperation between them. So really appreciate it. And, uh, thank you so much for asking me. Of course. And, uh, and I'll text you uh, again uh, to follow up. Okay, sure. So have a nice weekend. Thanks so Bye -bye. much. Bye.